0: This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz Basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700.
1: All right, welcome into the show. My name is Andy Larson. I'm, along, I'm here alongside Ben Dowsett. We are the writers for SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. You're the editor. You're not just a writer. Uh, that's true. I, I am indeed managing editor. You're a writer extraordinaire. Um, you've insisted on that title for a long time. I have- and, and I feel like I need to keep that promise to you. Um, so we've got a good show. First of all, we had the first jazz game last night. Uh, the Houston Rockets defeated the Utah Jazz. We've actually got a game going on tonight as well. Dallas Mavericks playing the Utah Jazz right now in the first quarter
2: of that game. We um, appreciate those of you multitasking and listening to us while watching the game.
1: Yeah, and of course, if you are one of those people, um, the we always have the show available to download as a podcast later on at espn700sports.com. So check us out if you if you you know can't multitask or whatever. Um, But still, there's enough going on in Jazzland. And honestly, I think some of these things are actually more interesting than the games themselves in a lot of cases. Because, I mean, for example, the Alec Burks extension that we're about to talk about is, you know, the next four years of jazz basketball, potentially. Uh, Heck, five years, really, if you look at maybe a four-year extension after this one. So uh, there's a lot at stake for the jazz coming up between today and tomorrow's um, extension deadline the jazz need to look at.
2: Yeah, the tomorrow is the is going to be the extension. So then that's league wide. That's not just for the Jazz. October 31st every year, if a player is not extended, heading into their final year of their rookie contract, they're going to be the following summer, the way we saw with Gordon Hayward this past summer, they're going to become a restricted free agent, meaning that teams can make offers for them that the Jazz do have the rights to match. But as we saw with the Cantor deal this offseason, sometimes you get you have to match a little bit more than the, maybe the you Hayward to. deal. Or, yeah, excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. Did I misspeak there? No,
1: it's it's fine. So, um yeah, so we're we're going to get into that a little bit in just one second. Um, first of all, I want to tell you all about the show you're about to listen to. Um, first of all, we'll have um, our big guest today is Brett Karamanos. Uh, he writes for Grantland.com, also part of the ESPN family of, of things. Um, and he wrote an article this week about how the Utah Jazz are the new Phoenix Suns. You'll remember that the Phoenix Suns uh, won 48 games last season. The Utah Jazz hope to kind of... Get their that that same sort of success this season. Um, that Phoenix team was only predicted to win 19 games last year, and and for them to win 48, obviously they were the the surprise, the toast of the NBA, if you will, amongst um, you know non-contending teams. So
2: uh, and to be fair, he said, could the Jazz be the season. Right, right, right. right.
1: <laughs> you know, he I guess he hasn't predicted it, but still, it's a national writer who's looked at looks seriously at the Jazz taking a big leap this year. And I, I think it's something that we want to ask some questions about. So that'll be during the show. Um, we also had Adam Silver in Utah yesterday uh, making his first stop in Salt Lake City since he became NBA commissioner. We'll be on with him. I got a chance to ask him a couple of questions um, yesterday during his media segment about the lottery form, the cap smoothing, um, the relationship with the new uh, NBA Players Association director, Adam, uh, Michelle Roberts, sorry, so... We'll hear from him and kind of get an idea of uh, what's to come in the NBA. We'll also go around the NBA and talk about the Lakers, Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, some of the big stars of the NBA that have been really impressing thus far. <laughs> Little Lakers. <laughs> and we, we may laugh at the Lakers, too. Sorry. It'll be a good time. Uh, I mean, you can't, you can't avoid laughing at the Lakers, Yeah, it's right? hard
2: not to after last night.
1: Or <laughs> the game before that. Or yeah. it's, you know, tomorrow's game, I'm sure we'll be laughing, too. It'll be great. Anyway, um but I, I do wanna get into this Burks thing because like like I teased, it's it's the biggest long term issue for the jazz right now. Um, you know, whether or not you get the next four years of Alec Burks and, and at what price and at what impact on the jazz's salary cap. So we're gonna do a little bit of play acting here. We've got I, I'm gonna pretend to be the Utah Jazz and in particular Jazz General Manager, uh, Dennis Lindsay. And you're gonna be Andy, not me Andy, but Andy Miller. Andy Miller, yeah. The uh agent for alec burks i am
2: andy miller i'm not going to be i am <laughs> okay <And> my, <laughs> my theater teachers from high school will be proud good so you
1: you've been have you been acting like andy miller all day i've Are been you... in
2: character for the last like three hours or so <laughs> um some friends of mine have tried to get me out it totally hasn't worked i just keep throwing numbers at them it's good. fine
1: good that, that's all sports agents do i mean exactly market value yell and and say numbers at people mm-hmm. so we're, we're excited um, so, anyway, I'll go ahead and, and get started. I, I I feel like I should have a different voice for Dennis Lindsay.
2: Hello, Dennis. Why, hello there.
1: My name is Dennis Lindsay. I, I, oh, I, no, let's yeah, not do that. it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um,
3: oh, so, yeah, we're going to use John as our, sort of, as oh, our yeah, so, arbiter.
1: I should point that out So you and I Will go back and forth On what we think The value of Alec Burks is And then John At the very end Will be our arbitrator To decide Who is right Who Which contract Will Alec Burks Alec Burk Get alec burks sorry get for the next four seasons so
2: often when you go into an arbitration process and, and this is across multiple leagues typically it's one side offers one number the other side offers the other number and the arbitrator picks one He doesn't pick in the middle he doesn't average nothing like that they pick one number so it's a very interesting process i think we're gonna have a little bit of fun with this here so dennis thank you very much for having me into your office i really do appreciate it uh we're here to discuss the extension of mr alec burks
1: Yes. So uh, we feel that we would like Alec Burks to be a part of our team for the long-term future. He does a lot of things really well. Um, He's an excellent scorer. He's a good member of the community. Uh, He he works well with a lot of different players on our team, and we'd like him to be a long-term part of the Utah Jazz. That being said, we have to make it make sense with our long-term cap situation in order for the Utah Jazz to become a contending team in the future we feel that the correct dollar amount for Alec Burks is four years, $36 million.
2: I am offended.
1: No. Let me, hear me out. Hear me out, Andy. You and I are good friends. You, we've worked together before on deals. Let me, Hear me out. Fine,
3: first Dennis.
1: of all, Alec Burks is a great scorer. I'll grant you that. But he hasn't been able to show himself on the defensive end of things. And, and as a result, it's questionable whether or not he's a positive impact player in the league. So first of all... Uh, his stats show generally a, a below average player across the board. So, for example, he allows his opponents an above average uh, PER, player efficiency rating, the, the Hollinger metric I'm sure both of us are familiar with. Um, he allows a negative 1.68. I, I know I'm throwing numbers at you, but, you know, we're agents. I'm so. an agent. I love
2: numbers. Okay, Perfect.
1: Then uh, that number is based on ESPN's um, real plus-minus metric, which basically says when Alec Burks is on the floor, even when you adjust for all the different teammates and uh, opponents that he's facing, he still has a negative influence on his team's defense. That's not good, and that's something that we have to consider in terms of offering Alec Burks a contract. He does look decent at times of tape, but he doesn't get the steals. He doesn't get the blocks that the really good or even average wing defenders do in the NBA. He does get below average steals and blocks per game. And then he also seems like he doesn't have any of these secondary skills that would really help him out. So, for example, Gordon Hayward, Chandler Parsons, um, you know, some of these guys who have signed contracts this offseason, Eric Bledsoe, Kemba Walker they all have a secondary skill to help them out with their game, whether that be rebounds, whether that be assists. In Hayward's case, it's a little bit of both. Um, He he doesn't have the defense like we just talked about. So ultimately, Alec Burks is a scorer, which is great. But that being said, I don't know if we can offer him the farm, so to speak. I vastly
2: disagree, Dennis. I vastly disagree, particularly with your assessment defensively of Alec Burks. Now... I will allow you that from time to time, Alec has struggled early in his career with understanding the sort of some of the nuances of more high-level NBA defense. Things away from the ball. Getting through screens. Some of which, of course, isn't his fault because he's he's not as big as some of the guys that no, he's having to uh, go through. No, we don't have to pay him under- to let him go through screens. I understand. Screens. I understand. May I finish, sir? Sorry, May I finish? Uh, apologies. <laughs> uh, also... I believe that the statistics that you cited, him allowing an above-average PER against his opponents, I think in no way encapsulates the type of opponents that Alec Burks is being forced to defend. You may cite some other players uh, a little bit later on as comparables for that sort of thing. I don't think the situations are comparable. First of all, Alec Burks can defend multiple positions, which, compared to a lot of the guys who we may look at a little bit later, is a major advantage. That's something many of them cannot do. Also, I personally this being both me as Andy Miller, the agent, and Ben Dowsett, the analyst <laughs> on this radio show, generally discount uh, RPM numbers for the most part, especially on terrible, terrible defensive or offensive teams, as the Jazz were a terrible defensive team last year. I know that the, n- the numbers themselves are meant to generally Equalize for all factors including teammates and other things like that in my particular experience they don't I'm not a mathematician who's creating these statistics but I know enough about them that I think I can say that fairly clearly we need to watch what's going on on the court as well as look at the numbers now of course I am an agent and I do love numbers but we have to be watching what's happening on the court and to throw a few more numbers at you last year as a an isolation defender and as a defender in pick and roll sets Alec was elite he was a lead in both these categories, particularly in the isolation, one of the top 20 in the NBA of all qualified players, one of the best wing defenders in the league. He stayed in front of his guy extremely well. He didn't allow guys to get past him for easy buckets, and for me, your assessment of him as a below-average defender is very far off.
1: So tell me, Alec Burks, agent, what number do you think— What? How much do you think we should pay, Alec Burks? What's your, what's your contract offer?
2: Okay, okay. I am demanding for my client a four-year, $50 million contract extension, Oof. which equates out to $12.5 million per year on average. That's, that's rich. I... That's rich, but let's look at a few things that are going to be larger contextual factors here. First of all, the rising salary cap. We all know that a couple of weeks ago, the new TV deal was announced for the NBA, which will kick in in the summer of 2016. We're not exactly sure about all the details yet in terms of how the salary cap will be affected by that, whether it will jump in one huge increment right at the summer of 2016 or whether the league may try to, quote-unquote, smooth that out and, and have less of a jump in the cap right away. In either case, the salary cap is projected to reach as high, if not slightly higher, than $80 million Currently, it's at 63, as you know. That's for this year. At an $80 million cap, a $12 million per year contract, which we're asking for just slightly more than that, represents the same portion of the cap that currently a $9.5 million per year contract would represent. We're not talking about necessarily about just right now, of course. This is a player who's going to be on the team. We're hoping to sign him to a four year contract here after this year. This is that we're talking about, it could be at $80 million by the second year of his contract. Also, we need to look at the scarcity of skills and positions in the league. Alec Burks plays a position that, like Gordon Hayward, who was signed last year, somewhat scarce position in terms of high-level talent in the NBA. Now that we're in a, a post-Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade being elite, maybe maybe Dwayne still has a little bit of elite left in him, but now that we're past those days... Kobe does too. Let's. I'm, I'm going to give Kobe, he's at least a little bit elite. Okay, a little bit if you want to, he's not, I guess. He's
1: the best player on the Lakers, let's put it that way.
2: Okay, okay. <laughs> but some of the same thoughts for Hayward now there were many people wondering why did you guys, the Jazz, pay Gordon Hayward so much money when in some cases a lot of people suggested that his total on-court value wasn't quite as high as certain other guys who were getting less money over the offseason and a lot of that answer had to do with the scarcity of his skills and the scarcity of players at his position. For example, his secondary skills correct? Like, what makes
1: Gordon Hayward an excellent player is is not that he's an excellent scorer because I think we agree that he's not you know, his his shooting percentages showed that uh, to a large extent last year, but it's It's his secondary skills. It's that he can do everything on the court, rebounding, assists. He led the uh, preseason in steals, I believe, this last uh, uh, preseason. So you know, he's doing a lot of things that contribute to the court in
2: ways that Alec Burks just can't. And note, of course, that we are not asking for the same number that Gordon Hayward received in salary because, of course, we don't feel necessarily that Alec's scoring skills 100% make up for some of the tangential skills that you're talking about. And we don't disagree that Gordon has some of those in a larger area than than, uh, Alec does.
1: So, uh, regarding your salary cap raising point, that's not an that's not something that's going to be kicking in until two years down the road of this extension. So not until
2: year three of this extension. No, no, or, no, sorry. first first year of his extension because this contract does not kick in this year. This okay. contract would kick in next year, and the proposed for the, uh, assuming there's no major smoothing effect, which again we're not completely sure of. 2016-17 would be this would be the season that that kicked in.
1: It would be kicking in in 2015-16. So he'd get to play out this one and then extend. Next year,
2: yeah. So he'd play one year, fifteen, sixteen, under the old cap. The and old and cap, I think it's important then, to recognize that. And but then that's we're talking about three years then under the new cap, under a, a cap that, by the way, in those third and fourth years of his contract, could and very well likely will exceed eighty million by quite a bit, and may even get as close to, get close to ninety, according to some projections.
1: Nevertheless, we still have to build our team. the The Jazz we don't want to be bad in twenty fifteen sixteen and twenty sixteen seventeen and if if we're giving Alec Burks too large a percentage of our cap during those two years you know all of a sudden our team building
2: doesn't work out but you speak as a team that as though you're a team that's capped out or somewhere close which i think we both know is not the case currently dennis would you debate that uh, I, you know we're
1: near the cap level right now it's not like we can sign uh, a mid-level player right now for example but that being said yes we have set it up so that we have some flexibility down the road
2: in fact that that, that setup was done well before we knew for sure what this new tv deal would do and how the deal would explode so when that setup was done which very well included alec burks i think we both know that was that was done without knowing that the cap was going to go up this high
1: no i I think that's fair but then we have to ask you know whether or not this core particularly is good enough to be a contending core uh Personally, I think we're still a couple of different players away that we'll need to add. It would be good for us to have that free agency cap space in order to be able to take that next leap because, quite frankly, right now, this team that which won 25 games last season doesn't look good enough in order to to be a contending
2: team. Well, sure, it doesn't right now. Everyone on the roster is under 24.
1: And that's fair. And that's, I mean, it's not as if we're rejecting Alec Burks out of hand right here like we did with Ennis Canter days ago. <laughs> oh, let's laugh about that one. What a silly but, guy. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not his agent. I know. What a a shame. Um, But Alec Burks, we'd like to have on our team moving forward. It's just whether or not we can make it work. You pointed out, for example, that there are these guys... Alec Burks is in one of the scarcer positions in the league. These wing, uh, this wing position,
2: especially players that can guard and play both, both wing positions, both shooting guard and small forward.
1: So, and we still have some more debating to do on this defense thing because I think that that might be where we're on drastically different scales. Is I I think he's probably a below average defender. You think he's an above average one, and, and you know that's a that's a wide gap. But regarding this particular point with wing scarcity, you know, guys like Lance Stevenson got three years, $27 million this season. Trevor Ariza, four years, $32 million. And I would argue that both of those guys have greater on court impacts than Alec Burks does.
2: I would disagree. I think that if you look at Trevor Ariza's career every single season, except for the seasons when he's been in a contract year, like he was last year, you will see that his numbers now, in no way approximate the value that Alec Burks is bringing No,
1: no. Now, we've done the studies, and, and we've shown that contract years are, are not you know aberrantly different for NBA players as a whole. So, for example, Gordon Hayward last season, obviously a contract year, didn't have his best season.
2: Oh, not for every player. But if you look at Trevor Ariza, quite specifically, Trevor Ariza okay. has had two contract years in his NBA career both those two contract years have been significantly significantly better than any other year in his career
1: fair but and then so uh, talking about Ariza specifically but he's also a better three-point shooter which allows the, uh, the defense forces to to have to guard Ariza rather than you know it kind of opens up the spacing for other players uh he's a significantly better rebounder than than Gord uh sorry than Alec Burks um, had exactly the same PR last season, and and ultimately, I think is a much better defender. We saw some of that last night as the Jazz faced off against the Rockets.
2: I don't. I know that we may not come to an agreement point on this defense thing, but okay. I, I really, I honestly don't agree. I don't feel as though Trevor Ariza is a better defender. Certainly not. Did a you more, watch last night's game? Oh, I watched the game. Certainly not a more versatile defender than Alec Ooh, Burks. Alec Burks no. can 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 Trevor Ariza defend point guards. No, but I think Trevor Ariza can. can
1: defend small forwards more capably than Alec Burks can.
2: Certain ones. Like, yes, I'm not putting Alec Burks on LeBron James when he comes to town, and maybe Ariza would do a slightly better job there. But A, a lot better job. Okay. I mean, because Trevor Ariza is a th- lot
1: longer and is a lot bigger than Alec Burks is, who's, who's honestly, you know, body-wise, it's kind of a Jamal Crawford type.
2: Uh, with a little, you know, a little few differences. I'm sure, he's not as big as a reason, no question. He's not going to be able to body up with a few of your heavier type threes in the league, like your Lebrons and your Carmelo's, But really, how many of those guys are there exactly? How no. many, how many guys are there like that that we really feel like physically Alec Burks is going to have a major disadvantage with defensively? I think the number you can count on one hand, maybe a couple fingers of the second hand.
1: I, I mean, I I think that's fair. There aren't that many elite small forward wings in the league. But that being said, I. I think positionally you want him guarding your shooting guards anyway because, you know, for us at least, Gordon Hayward exists.
2: This is true. Now, let me throw another comparable here at you. And, of course, by the way, before I do that, the fact that Gordon Hayward is here mitigates some of what we were just talking about. The fact that we know Gordon Hayward is here long term means that Alec Burks doesn't have to guard your LeBron types when they do come to town because Gordon Hayward can do it. Now, let me throw a few other names at you, ones that I think— Compare a little bit more closely to the types of things that, well, or to the types of things that shooting guards specifically are generally supposed to do. Even though, again, we're talking about Alec Burks and some of these other players more as wings rather than just as shooting guards. But I'm going to name a couple of names for you here. Eric Gordon, Clay Thompson, DeMar DeRozan. Okay, let's talk about, first of all...
1: uh those guys, two guys who signed their contracts over two seasons ago, and by the way, Eric Gordon by has been seen as as a drastic overpay, and Demar Derozan is all of a sudden just getting close to to what he was offered for the first two years of that contract. People felt again he was an overpay too. He's also only making ten point one million dollars.
2: But again, all these contracts were signed well before there was any knowledge within the league about this large ballooning salary cap, which I think we do have to take into consideration that the teams were. And Clay Thompson has not signed a contract yet. Klay Thompson Thompson is rumored this upcoming offseason to be receiving a max extension, and that's considered around the league to be pretty much a foregone conclusion. You and I both have our league contacts, Dennis, so we know this. Yeah. That said, Thompson, of course, has been a better three-point shooter, significantly, that's but with that, their true shooting percentage, which for those who don't know combines the value of two point shots, the extra value that is inherent in a three point shot, of course, because it's worth one point five times as many points, and of course also the value in uh, in free throws. True shooting percentages for those two players are nearly identical, despite Thompson being a better three point, a significantly better three point shooter. Burks has better passing numbers. He's a better rebounder. In fact, he's pretty much better at basically everything you do offensively that's inside the three-point line, which, as you know, is a lot of stuff. The three-pointers are very important. We're not debating that. And, of course, Alex still does shoot 35% from three, which is well above the league average and still warrants being guarded out on the three-point line. But he doesn't bend the defense like Klay Thompson
1: does. I mean, the truth is, if you look at, again, if, how the Jazz do with Alec Burks on the floor compared to how they do without him on the floor, his plus-minus there is not, is not impressive ben- like it is with Klay Thompson.
2: Bending defenses isn't only about shooting threes There are far more ways to bend defenses Than just the way you stretch out on the perimeter Sometimes the way you stretch the defense Towards the interior can be even more important Burks has gotten to the line Nearly three times as often as Clay Thompson If you use last year's numbers That's a big deal Free points from the free throw line are even more important Than three pointers in the NBA as As numbers have shown over time I believe that Burks has shown his offensive game to be far less dependent on his teammates and scheme also. I think that Burks fits far better with varying different types of lineups, which we think know that. Clay j- Thompson does? Absolutely. I think Clay Thompson is in many ways, high in many ways highly, highly dependent on Stephen Curry being next to him and opening up that sort of space for him. I'm not suggesting that Clay Thompson is a bad player by any means. But if Clay Thompson is going to be worth over fifteen million dollars a year next year, which is again a foregone conclusion in the league that he will be, and we're arguing that Alec is worth Four fifths of that, roughly, I believe he absolutely brings four fifths of that value to the table, if not more. And I'm at three fifths.
1: But I, I so because Clay Thompson again is a better defender than Alec Burks is. I mean it, even that just part looking I don't reputations. So uh, so given that that there, his defense is significantly better, his shooting is significantly better. Only and we three. look at, uh, sure. And we look at how the NBA offense is evolving to where people are laughing at the Lakers for putting up only 10 to 15 threes a game. Uh, you know, I think you need someone more
2: someone like Clay Thompson more than you need someone like Alec Burks. I think that depends on the rest of your team construct. And when we're talking about a Jazz team that looks to have Trey Burke for the long-term future, who may have had a down year from three last year, but his profile coming out of college and expected long-term is that he is going to be a three-point shooter, shot over 50% from three in the preseason this year. Gordon Hayward did the same. Again, he had a down year last year, but there was a lot of context at play there. When you look at that, you got Rodney Hood coming in also, who's going to be a knockdown three-point shooter in the league and is going to be playing in the rotation. But these are knockdown
1: three-point shooters compared to the best shooting guards of all time, or sorry, really the best shooting backward of
2: all time in. Steph Curry and Klay and Thompson sure but again I think so much more of that has to do with Steph than it does with Clay, and Uh, Again, not calling Clay a bad player. In fact, he might even be, in fact, probably is a slightly better overall player than Alec Burks. But again, we're not asking for the same number. We're asking for a significantly smaller number. We're asking for it from a team that has carved the cap space over the last few years precisely for the reasons of these types of extensions, and we're asking it for a player who we feel clearly exhibits the majority of the skills that are in high demand in the league right now. The ability to get to the hoop, the ability to draw fouls. It's not like he's a bad three-point shooter, again, above league average, and the ability to kick the ball out to his teammates at the right times there, which he started to do a lot more last year and in this preseason.
1: And I guess I question that because I'm just saying this because I want the last word, but because his assist numbers are so low compared to the rest of the shooting guards in the league. Let's go to our man, the arbitrator, our producer, John Lafollette. Judges? John. Who gets it? Is it the 436 that Dennis Lindsay and the Utah Jazz are arguing for, or is it the 450 contract that Andy Miller and Alec Burks' agency wants?
2: The kind of athleticism Alec Burks brings is not a dime a dozen. And with the rising salary cap, I'm going to take Alec and his agent here. Four years, 50 million. Boom, agent wins. (laughs) (laughs) But I will add in this caveat, if the cap was not raising like that, that's a lot harder decision to make because that's a big investment for a good player, but not a great player. And I'd agree with that, but I th- I think, of course, that and and good debate, by the way, Andy, I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, I like I I was an actor in high school; it was fun. Uh, no, I uh, I I do think that that's a that's a huge factor the the fact that the salary cup is ca- salary cap, excuse me, is going up that much. It's a it's a massive factor, and it's one that we can't we can't look aside.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think that it is, but I I think you know we have to look at. Whether or not these twenty-five, if we're overcompensating for that, whether or mm-hmm. not you know the the cap's going up twenty-five percent, it's not going up fifty percent, you know. So is is twelve point five really fair? You know, honestly, I think these are the sort of discussions that they're having within the Jazz yeah. front office, or yeah. you know, wherever it is that these guys are having these discussions. Again, the extension for the Burks, uh, sorry, the deadline for the Burks extension is tomorrow, October thirty-first. It'll you be alone? interesting to see if they can come to a deal by then
2: are you a little surprised that we've heard so little
1: i am i i mean i'm not surprised that the jazz haven't leaked anything and that andy miller hasn't leaked anything and i do think that these guys are legitimately trying to work together you know both parties from what i hear are you know respectful of each other are talking to each other there mm-hmm. there are discussions going on again not like the relationship between jazz uh, the jazz and Ennis Cantor's agent But um, that we haven't heard already kind of surprises me that an extension has been signed. The Derek Favors extension was signed— 19th, I think, or something like that. Yeah, 10, 11 days ago um, this time last year. So I I, I am a little bit surprised.
2: Yeah, me as well. But we're going to take a little bit of break. We're going to be coming back. We're going to be looking at some season— little further season predictions that we haven't already gone into. Some from me, some from Salt City Hoops' Clint Johnson.
1: Yeah, looking forward to that. Come up next on the Salt City Hoops Saturday or Salt City Hoops Show. Sorry, show. This is the Salt City Hoops Show on ESPN Seven Hundred. I I swear I know the name of the show. I'm Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of SaltCityHoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate with uh, of the Utah Jazz, alongside Ben Dowsett. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Andy B. Larson and at and at Ben underscore Dowsett. Again, that's at Andy B. Larson and at Ben underscore Dowsett. If you wanna weigh in on whether or not you felt uh Alec Burks' agent or myself won that battle and if you feel comfortable playing um Alec Burks, the the masterful amount that that Andy Miller j- over here just um successfully argued for
2: to be quickly clear Ben Dowsett would prefer that d- despite his love of Alec Burks would prefer that they get him for less because of course I would like the jazz to have as much room as possible in the future it would be great to get him for less as long as he stays on the team so you like the jazz more than you like Alec Burks's magnificent parties i think alec burks is worth something close to that number realistically honestly not just arguing as the agent but i think that they that, of course as a fan of the team you hope they get him for less because yeah. then that o- opens up possibilities going forward
1: right and and it's not that big of a difference i mean it, it is only i guess it is three and a half million dollars per year but that could be you know a, a substantial role player that's about what the jazz are paying steve novak for example a, a little bit less for steve there than three and a half but regardless Um, we've got a couple of interesting posts on salt city hoops this week that I want to talk about during this segment, um, regarding predictions for this upcoming jazz season. And of course we're starting to see it, uh, yesterday and we've, we've halfway through a game today that is, is not going especially well, um, definitely to this point. But I want to talk about how we see these things playing out during 82 games, you know, because I think it's fair to say that a game and a half isn't a fair sample size for this team. There are going to be a lot of up and downs. I think we all expected that the first part of the schedule is really difficult, but it'll be really the true 82 games that stretch that that tests this jazz. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you about, though, is pace of play. Uh, and that's something that Quinn Snyder's talked a lot about in, in this preseason, is that he wants the Jazz to move, to get in transition, to get these easy transition baskets. Because truthfully, this, he, I, I feel like he knows that this team doesn't have the star power to succeed in the half court you know, all of the time. So if, if they are able to get in front of the defense a little bit, use their athleticism, that would help out a lot.
2: Absolutely. And something that I've been talking about fairly frequently during the preseason and leading up to the start of these games here is the fact that whether we like it or not and we we you know sometimes we're a bit of homers in terms of our own guys but the jazz are going to be giving up a skill advantage a lot of nights to the teams they play they've just they've got a lot of young guys that haven't fully developed their nba talents yet and they're going to be giving up an advantage there one of the ways that you can help mitigate something like that is by getting easier points we've talked about those a ton through transition and that's that that tie, plays a big role in one of my it was the first prediction in my 10 utah jazz season predictions piece that got published earlier this where that was yesterday excuse me is that the Jazz will go from a bottom-five pace team last year. They were the fifth-slowest team in the league. And again, pace, for those who don't know, just refers to the number of possessions that are taking place in the game, the number of actual—and that's for both teams. It's not for one team in the game. It's for both teams. Now, the Jazz were the fifth-slowest team in the league last year. I believe that this year they will become a top-ten pace team in terms of their speed.
1: That seems really optimistic to me. I mean, given, for example, how they played last night with only 89, 90 possessions in, in last night's game, you know, some of the top teams in the league are going at 100, 105 possessions per game. I think in order to be a top 10 team, we've also seen the pace of play increase every year for the last five in the NBA. Mm-hmm. If the Jazz want to be a top 10 in next season's NBA, they have, to, they have to get up to that level. You know, what we've seen in preseason and what we saw last night it doesn't show a high pace team.
2: Well, I disagree on preseason for the 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 Jazz were one of the the exactly the 10th fastest team in the preseason okay. actually in terms of pace. So they're right on the bubble of the level that I'm talking about there. Part of the reason that I do think this as I wrote in the piece has to do with the Jazz bigs. Now, Trevor Booker is one of the main ones that I highlighted and I do think that based on if he continues playing how he has in this very small sample size so far, going to be seeing him on the court a lot more often, right? And Trevor Booker is one of those types of players that has a foot speed advantage on nearly any of the other guys that are going to be guarding him on the court meaning that if he gets off at the right times after rebounds and things like that, he's going to be able to beat guys down the court and for bigs that can do that and that can also dribble the way that he can and finish the way that he can, these are going to be advantages. Same with Rudy Gobert. Rudy doesn't seem like the quickest sprinter in the world right off the right when you look at him cuz he's huge, but the fact that he has legs as long as he does means that he can actually get going really fast with those strides that he takes. Most centers can't run as fast as him and he's beating guys down the court. We didn't I, we didn't see a ton of it in the one game last night, but I do think that as the team gets more comfortable with what they're supposed to be doing, I think a lot of this is just they're not used to it. They're not they, The Jazz haven't been used to, in the past, grab the rebound, go, 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 right away. They haven't been—it's ha- not what they've done. I, I think that's fair, but I
1: also don't think that it's those guys who lead the fast break, right? I mean, in the end, you're not having Trevor Booker and Rudy Gobert lead your fast break. You're oh, yeah. having Trey Burke, you're having Gordon Hayward, you're having Alec Burks, you're, you know, those kind of guys, Dante Exum— be the leaders on those fast breaks. Yeah. And really, they're the ones who are responsible for getting transition points. You know, obviously, Carl ran the floor as a jazz man. But the truth is that it was John Stockton leading the break. A- yeah. And so they don't have the fastest point guard. They don't have the fastest shooting guard. They, you know, Trey Burke, these guys... or Alec
2: Burks is pretty fast. Okay, Alec.
1: Yeah, sure. And I, and I agree. But I, I don't think Trey Burke is particularly. I don't know that Gordon Hayward is. Although, you know, he, he's pretty good in transition, don't get me wrong. But I just don't know if we see that moving forward
2: well and here's the other part of this is that not all of pace is necessarily dictated by how you play in transition and that's another big piece of what my analysis, my prediction was the Jazz, and we've talked about this as well, is earlier entries into their offensive sets and how, how much more quickly, rather than standing there waiting for the bigs to get down the court, waiting for everybody to get to their preferred position, and then starting the play with 13, 14, 15 seconds left on the shot clock, the Jazz are getting right into actions right away as quickly as possible. They're starting things. A lot of the time they're finding er, shots earlier. Didn't happen as much last night, but I think this is the type of thing with time and as the players get more comfortable in the offense they're running, we're going to see a lot more scoring earlier on in possessions or at least shots taken in- earlier possessions and that's going to create more possessions throughout the game
1: yeah again i i think you hope so and then i don't know if that actually comes in that actually happens when the jazz face nba caliber starter defenses all the time like we said last night against the houston rockets they did face that kind of defense and there were a lot of possessions where the jazz were late in the shot clock having to force up these you know kind of crazy jump shots because they just had to get the ball up on the rim that's the sort of thing that kills your pace, right?
2: It's true, and and that some of that is going to be the transition from the preseason, where it really just is a different speed in the preseason to the regular season. I'm still confident in my project, in my prediction. I do, even if I miss it by a couple spots, and they're only like the 12th to 13th fastest team in the league. I think there's almost no chance that they finish as a, a one of the lower teams. At least, I think there's almost no chance they finish below average. It's that great support agent
1: in you that allows you to stick to your convictions, no yes, matter sir. what. Yes, sir. Let's talk about your next prediction, though. Um, this NS Cantor will make fewer than 25 threes this season obviously that's something that has been talked about a lot this preseason is that ennis Cantor is going to be one of the new jazz bigs taking a lot of three-point shots as a stretch four uh, your research didn't show that that was likely
2: yeah and that again that didn't have anything to do with like we don't think that the jazz or quinn snyder or anybody who's talking about canter's uh, improve or uh, Raising number of threes, sorry, I got tongue-tied there. None of them are lying or, or being facetious or anything like that. They certainly do want to extend Cantor out and try and space offense a little bit more. But just within the league, how very few bigs are ever able to actually eclipse that threshold? Last year, just 10 centers in the entire league. Hit 25 threes. And several of those guys, like a Channing Fry, like a Matt Bonner, who for some reason is classified as a center, which doesn't make any sense, uh, like a a Byron Mullins, those guys, those guys are specialists. That's their whole job is to be on the court and be hitting threes. Like their teams actually, in often cases, they suffer defensively because those guys are are shooting, are meant to be out there to space the offense and shoot the threes. You even look at guys like Serge Ibaka. Serge Ibaka didn't hit 25 threes last year. And his thing was sort of the same as Cantor's is this year. Like, like, oh, hey, look, Serge is shooting threes this year. He's going to shoot a ton of corner threes and everything like that. In the end, he still didn't break 25, even though they were letting him fire away all the time. I just think given the position and the context of it and a little bit of how Cantor has been shooting it in the preseason, which wasn't very well, I just don't think that he's going to be able to get there. It's a That's a big step for a 7-foot tall person to make, unless you're Dirk Nowitzki and have been doing it your whole life.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair. He was 0-for-2 in that Houston game thus far in the Dallas game. He hasn't shot one yet. Um, and ultimately, I think it's also up in the air whether or not he gets the playing time. I mean, last night he only had 22 minutes, I believe, on the floor. Yeah. Um that's just going to that it's going to be hard to get enough three point shots up to, to kind of hit that 25 number. Um, as, as Rudy Gobert keeps taking
2: more and more of those Exactly. Minutes. And if he can't stay on the court, then it's going to be basically impossible for him to hit that.
1: No, I think that's fair. Let's go on to the next one, uh, your rebounding prediction. So you thought that the Jazz will collect over 51% of all available rebounds. So um, that would actually make them one of the top 10 teams in the NBA last year. Basically, you think they're going to be an excellent rebounding team um, last year, they were 21st in the league in rebounding. Why, why the jump?
2: Well, a big part of the reason is that they are no longer going to be starting a lineup that only features one big man. The last year, the Jazz, by, the, by maybe 15 games into the season or whatever it was, when Ty Corbin replaced Ennis Cantor in the starting lineup, the Jazz were running a, a, a starting lineup that really only had Derek Favors as the actual big this year there's going to be far less of that. We're not we're I mean we saw none of Steve Novak. We have not seen Steve Novak on the court yet this year. He's probably going to the minutes are going to be tough for him and at most of the time the Jazz are going to have two legitimate big men on the court at all times. I guess Booker is the closest, but Booker Booker counts as a big man as far as rebounding goes. He bangs down low, he gets there for rebounds. He's not he's not the same as a Steve Novak type or even like a Marvin Williams who played the 4 last year. Now, also another big part of this reason is Rudy Gobert. And how much I think Rudy Gobert is going to be on the court for the preseason this year? He per minute rebounding. So if we if we go out to have every for every minute the player was on the court, Rudy was the third, I believe, third best rebounder in the league for the preseason wow. per minute. Derek Favors was also in the top twenty, and we know that Derek Favors can rebound the ball. Cantor, while he does have issues uh, on both sides of the ball, sometimes he's been a, at least a reasonable good rebounder. And Booker, of course, I like him as well. I just think that the Jazz, main, Gobert is honestly the main piece of this. I think that Rudy is almost forcing Quinn Snyder to play him more, and that as he continues to do that, I mean, he's huge. It's just it's simple physics. People that are that tall are, and can still jump are going to get the majority of the rebounds.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair. I mean, so, so far in tonight's game, he's got five rebounds through halftime. Uh, score is 69-44, by the way, at the half. Um, yeah, that's, that's not great. That 69, by the way, represents Dallas Mavericks, 44 for the Utah Jazz. Uh last night he got only three rebounds so in 20 minutes so you know it's some up and down performances obviously rebounding against Dwight Howard I think is going to be a little bit harder mm-hmm. than rebounding against Dirk Nowitzki Tyson Chandler and you know whoever uh, Brandon Wright I guess they play at center sometimes. Yeah. And, then,
2: and then also Hayward is a very good rebounder as well for his position as we were talking about earlier and I think that that's, he's going to be playing a ton as well and in most cases Hayward's going to have the rebounding advantage over most threes that he plays against don't you think?
1: Yeah no I, I think that's fair uh, we've got just a little minute left in the segment, but your quick reactions to the Jazz being down
2: 25 at half. Um, well, you know, I've only been able to watch snippets of the game because I've wanted to focus on doing the best possible radio show that I can, <laughs> but uh, you could some you could see some of this coming. They played last night, whereas Dallas didn't. I believe this is Dallas's home opener, if I'm not mistaken. They played the other night, but I'm pretty sure it was on the road. Right? I could be wrong about that, but either way, Dirk is given the Jazz's roster. Dirk is the kind of guy who's always going to kill us. He's the Jazz just don't. I mean, I guess Gobert might be the closest thing they have to somebody who can match up with him defensively. And yeah. Gobert, there's no way Rudy's going to be able to handle his array of moves and fakes and up and unders and goofy stuff like that and all the the fun screen actions that he gets into and everything. Monte Ellis has been taking them apart I think if you uh, if you look at the numbers Yeah, shooting. well actually he's only shooting four for eight But still, not the greatest matchup for the Jazz this, I mean, The Mavs are going to be an offensive juggernaut This yeah, entire year
1: It's interesting and I think they showed that against the Spurs in game one Um 13 points for Dirk Nowitzki so far in 13 minutes, six for seven shooting. Um, it, it, it's interesting that the Jazz have given up 69 points despite only five fast break points. Anyway, let's go ahead and go to the break. Uh, next segment, by the way, we'll be talking about more of your predictions as well as we'll have Adam Silver's interview live on, or sorry, not live, but from last night on ESPN 700. Then coming up later in the show is Brett Caraminos, writer for Grantland, talking about the Utah Jazz. This is the Salt City Hoop Show
0: is going to be at this level, but you know, even if he's average, I mean, you're talking about a big boost in terms of coaching performance and just you know the, the way that a team is prepared and the way that, that players are utilized. Um, I think you're seeing a lot cleaner fits, um, and and I do think it makes a big impact when you get a guy that comes in um, that's able to to just kind of organize players and and a coach's main job above everything else, you know, outside of just you know making sure that he genuinely wants you know, what's in this guy's best interest is to just put guys in spots that they're going to succeed. Um, you know, a lot of times you see players get killed for stuff, you know, whether it's on Twitter or in articles, and, I, you know, it's hard for me to see because, you know, there's a lot of it you could just simply point to the coaching decision and say he shouldn't have been in that spot to begin with. Um, and I think what we're seeing in the preseason with Quinn Snyder's teams is that guys are doing what they should. You know, Gordon Hayward is being asked to not to be a scorer in pick and rolls, but help facilitate ball moving. You know, they're getting Derek Favors post-up touches, but it's mostly after he's set a screen, he's dove to the rim, the defense has shifted, and they reverse the ball around, and it's really quick stuff where he's got a a nice deep feeling and advantage. Um, You know, we see Trey Burke playing a little bit more off the basketball, Um, you know, because he's not, you know, his size is always going to preclude him from being like a great playmaker out of pick and roll. He just isn't going to be able to see the floor as well. Um, You know, and then just obviously the decision to turn his canter into a stretch big, I mean, you see the way that, the league is shifting and whether or not Tanner is going to eventually evolve into that or be able to fit that mode. Um, you need a guy, uh, another big guy that, that allows you to, to pull another defender out of the paint and create driving depths for guys like Alex Burks, um, you know, and for Dante Xman when he comes in the game. And, you know, you see that with Booker and Tanner. And I just think that's, that's just really smart stuff. And, you know, he's obviously going to, going to try to continue to tweak and move things around, but, um, it makes a big difference when you have a coach that's really, good at putting guys in spots that, that are they're going to succeed
1: and do well in. As a coach, what do you think, I mean, this is something we've talked about on the show for the last few months, but what do you think the biggest, the, the difference is, the value of a coach is between, you know, a, a poor coach and an average coach, or an average coach is, and a great coach? Is it, is it only a couple of wins? Is it five wins? Is it, you know, 10 to 15, 20? I mean, what what's a reasonable number to expect if if you're the Jazz or really any other team kind of making a coach upgrade or downgrade?
0: Um... That's a good question. I, I think it really—it's it, kind of a marriage between um, where the, who the coach is and where the team's at in general. I think you know if you bring a great—you uh, know—and we're going to see it's going to be a litmus test for a, a lot of uh, a lot of teams around the league. You know, we're going to see you know what uh, what Jason Kidd can do in Milwaukee over Larry Drew. We're going to see what obviously Quinn Schneider can do over Ty Corbin in Utah, um, and then the biggest one I think that everybody's going to have their eye on is you know what can Sam bankman do with the Detroit roster. Um, and, and the, the thing that I always I point to uh, when I kind of talk about subjects around this is I look at what the Dallas Mavericks have done with Rick Carlisle, and even you know, when they won in 2011, I mean, they had good basketball players, don't get me wrong, and they had Dirk, and, and he played great, and Tyson Chandler was great, um, but they had a lot of, like, really mixed-up pieces that he just would put together, um, and then you saw it in these other years when they pushed, uh, San Antonio to seven games, I mean, they were, they were the, the team that challenged San Antonio the most in the playoffs last year, you um, know, with a roster that you just wouldn't expect to push them like that, um, and you see that like any other coach, an average coach goes into that Dallas situation, and they probably don't make the playoffs next uh, last year, much less um, you know challenge the eventual title-winning Spurs, which will may go down as one of the better teams ever win a title. Um, and so you look at it like that, and and you say, yeah, that's probably you know what five, ten wins, and you know for some teams like with the Clippers team. You know, Vinny Negro and Doc, I think, won about the same amount of games, but you just see a different level for the Clippers. They're, you know, if Vinny Negro was still the coach, I don't know if you'd say, this team can win a title in the West, but you just see certain things now, you know, the system that Alvin Gentry put in last year, the defensive execution and the improvement of DeAndre Jordan, and stuff like that, where you just see him taking him to a level that maybe you can't measure in wins and losses, but we know that they're better. I mean, at least in my opinion, I think that they're better with Doc as a as a head coach. Absolutely. Um, oh, sorry. So it, it it just depends on I think the situation, like where the coach is going, where the team is at, and all that kind of stuff. But I, it does make a huge difference when you have a good to elite head coach in the NBA.
2: I really like that term that you used right at the start of that, a marriage, a marriage between sort of a, a coach and his roster. So looking, going back to your piece a little bit and sort of the, some of the Phoenix-Utah comparisons, looking at this Utah Jazz roster up and down, and then, of course, looking at the then the marriage that's going to take place or has taken place between Quint Snyder and that roster, how do you feel though the, that combination compares to what was in Phoenix last year and how the Jazz might be able to replicate some of Phoenix's success?
0: Um, I think that that the one thing that Jeff Hornacek really did um, is he empowered Goran Dragic. Um, I uh, I was fortunate enough to be down here last year, uh, and I, I went to a bunch of the Suns games, and I got to watch Goran live, and I really just never had an appreciation for how hard that dude played, and just the energy that he expands uh, offensively and in transition, just relentlessly attacking the basket, and, and what. Um, I think Jeff Hornacek did, most of all, was he let him go and do that. Um, and I think what you see a lot in the NBA is you see coaches that really will micromanage and they want to run these sets and they have this offense that they have to get in and these plays that they have to run. And if anything, the biggest knock i Phoenix last year was that they were just too structure. There just wasn't enough um, of some execution in the half court. But he did really let his guys go. He empowered his guys. And I think what I like about uh, the, the mix of Quinn Schneider, given what I see that he wants to do with his team and this Jazz roster, is uh, other than XMOM, I don't think there's going to be a star on this team. I think Derek Favors can be very, very good. I think Gordon Hayward can be very good. I think Trey Burke, um, playing more as an off-the-ball type, can be a very explosive scorer at the, at the point position. And you see Alex Burks, uh, I think I put it in the piece, you know, he's, he's drawing free throws at an incredible rate, like up with guys like Blake Griffin and James Harden and stuff like that. And that's a really impressive and important skill, especially when we talk about modern efficiency in basketball. It is. And so what I see with Schneider is he's trying to create balance. He wants a team that's going to move the ball. That ball's going to exchange sides of floor two three times in position because that's multiple guys are going to get in pick and roll. Um, and that, I think that's a perfect fit for this Jazz team because if they don't have a star – you just need a bunch of really good players um, that have, you know, with one or two really core pieces that stand out and you can still win a lot of basketball games. And as we saw with the Pacers, um, you know, you can get to a game of, you know, within one game of the finals with, you know, Paul George, who's probably just that, just below that elite level um, as the best player on your team.
2: Absolutely. And, so, how do, do you think that this is actually going to potentially for the? You talk about the careers of these younger players that are that are now on the Jazz. Do you think that this the the new coach that they've got and the new system that they're in can potentially raise and or low, hopefully not lower, but their the ceilings of these players? Do you think this is, in terms of their career trajectories, this is the sort of thing that's going to be benefiting them?
0: Oh, that yeah, that's uh, that's such a huge aspect of of uh, you know. I think we view the NBA. Um, a lot of people do. Um, in kind of a static situation, like a guy is either going to be really good or he's going to be really bad regardless of the situation. I think the exact opposite, and this is just my you know, opinion from my experience of, of watching and being around it, um, I think if it's a bell curve, you have your guys that are just, you know, they're they're just knuckleheads. You know, they're going to take themselves out of the league because of their decision-making, you know, on and off the of basketball court, and there's not really much that you can do to save them. And then I think you have maybe another 5% of like the Kevin Durant where you can put him in any situation no matter how bad it is, um, how bad the infrastructure is, and that guy is just so driven and so focused and so able to put distractions aside to become a great player. You know, he's going to make any team great. Um, And then I think you have about an 80% lump in the middle of guys that are completely, their careers are completely dictated upon their situation. What veterans around them early on, what system they're running in, what they're asked to do. Um, you know, I was just talking about, uh, with a friend of mine, Beckley Mason, um, who people may know because he's all around the Internet with writing, two very smart guys, I know Beckley. we were talking about Doug McDermott. And uh, we were saying that Doug McDermott literally could not have hand-picked a better situation for him to be in. He, you know, His biggest thing is going to be being able to, to be a great health defender because he's probably never going to be like an, you know disruptive on-the-ball guy. He goes with Tom Thibodeau. He's on a team where he's not going to be asked to score in ways that he can't or may never score in this league. Um, and it's going to help him grow at a, at a rate that, you know, is going to help bl- him blossom in his career. Um, whereas you see a guy like Jabari Parker go to Milwaukee and there's there's not a lot of talent. His, his shortcomings are defense, and he's going to take a lot of bad shots, and there's no veteran presence. Uh, you know, you can say a lot of uh, everything you can about the coach, but there's no veteran presence to kind of police that in the locker room to demand defensive accountability in concert with the coaching staff. Um, to have a guy that, you know, when, they're, when there's 14 on the clock and he's got an easy post-entry and he, you know, goes one-on-one and drives and takes a bad contested jumper, that there's not a veteran in the ear saying, you're not going to do that on this team. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how Parker evolves in that situation. And so when you get a guy like Gordon Hayward, who I thought was kind of dying on the vine under Ty Corbin, and then he's going to get put in a system where he just has to basically run the pick and roll and just start getting the ball moving. Um, and then if it comes back to him, great, or if he gets driving lanes and his reads are easy and he can attack the basket, great. But it's going to do wonders, I think, for him. It's going to really accent the things that, that Hayward does well, and, and that value that I think you saw lost in him last year is going to start to come back. Uh, you know, maybe people will never agree that he should have got the money that he got to, but I think they're going to get to a point where they're going to say he's a really um, you know, flexible, valuable offensive asset to a basketball team. Um, you know whereas if Hayward goes into another spot, you may not get that thing, and then if a guy 's confidence is damaged as it goes forward, you know you just never know what 's going to happen to that player um, and, and so I think it does make a huge impact that, that these guys are going to be in a system where they 're not going to be asked to do things that they shouldn 't do because it definitely can build bad habits in a team, um, and it can definitely make players look a lot worse than they really are. and once your perception is damaged, whether it's in the front office or even among fans, you know, pressure and stuff like that—it's a really hard thing to come back
1: from. We're on with Brett Kreminos of Grantland.com. Um, I, I want to ask you, Brett, about the uh, Western Conference playoff picture—kind of the larger context for this Jazz Phoenix dis- discussion. Obviously, a, a massively difficult Western Conference with a lot of very good teams. How do you see this uh, playoff race? Uh, coming out by the end of the season do you see any of the eight teams that were in the playoffs last season dropping out do you see which and if so which teams do you see moving back in
0: uh man uh, that's a good question um that's, that's a as really much as i one. really love to see utah shock it I, I really think a great season for the jazz would be right around that 40 win mark i think the, the reason that i think we got the idea for the piece was i saw their Vegas line at about 24 wins and and I said that's what the Lakers are going to win this year. I just, I just, I thought 24 was too low for this team when I watched them, you know, three or four times this preseason, and kind of did the extra film on synergy. Um, and but I, I don't know if they're going to factor. Um, I do think Phoenix is going to be right in there again this year. Um, I think the teams that could fall out there's two in my mind, uh, and, and the first one is Houston. Um, I really think that you know the loss of, of Chandler Parsons, um, and he did stuff for them offensively that. It, it's hard to, that Trevor Reeser just doesn't do. I mean, Chandler would, would be able to handle basketball. He'd be able to attack in the half court. He's a great close-out attack player. Um, you know, is going to be a better defender, um, and he's going to probably be, you know, maybe be a more accurate three-point shooter. Uh, but they just don't have guys that can come in and do what Chandler did, where he can attack the basket and put points on the board for you. Uh, and I also think that you know, their bench in general, uh, unfortunately, Papa Nikolai, he, that dude couldn't hit water if he fell out of boat in the preseason, and then he went, I think, four for four or four for five against the guys last night, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, he was a killer. Yeah.
0: Um, and so, I mean, but other than, other than that explosion, that, that bench has had some issues in terms of just depth and just overall effectiveness that I worry about. Um, and, and you need that. And in the West, especially, you know, guys are going to get hurt, guys are going to go through funk. You know, you need a nine, ten man rotation. Um, to really, you know, be able to solidify herself as a Western Conference playoff team, um, and I think the other team on that in that vein that that kind of has the potential to maybe fall out would be Portland. Uh, now, Mo Williams uh, is not not going to ever make an All defensive team, uh, that's for sure. But uh, you know, he could put points on the board, and he really ran. You know, he really had the ball in his hands, and he would score for a second unit of of guys like Terrell Wright and Thomas Robinson, uh, Joel Freeland. I think played for a little bit. Uh, CJ McCollum came back and played towards the end, but, you know, he really carried the burden. When the starters were out, um, you know, Mo Williams would come in and he would be able to keep those lineups afloat, um, offensively. And he's gone now, and I mean, you got to see Blake, who's a nice player, and Chris Kamen had uh, had a pretty good night in his first game, you know, so they're trying to replace that production with hoping CJ McCollum gets a little bit better and hoping Chris Kamen can score a little bit more, uh, you know, as a post-up threat and stuff like that. Uh, but if their bench play is gone too, Again, they're, they're only a, then they're only a five-deep uh, deep team, and I just think in the West you just have to have that depth. Uh, I think that's just going to be the deciding factor in some of these teams, and you're going to see it in Phoenix. Isaiah Thomas uh, killed it uh, in their first game against the Lakers, but I think a lot of guys are going to kill it against the Lakers this year. Um, and, you know, their, their depth is, is, is great. Um, I think, you know, their, their young guys are going to get a little bit better, uh, and I think they're going to they're be a real threat to knock one of those teams out this year.
1: All right, last question, and we only got about a minute left, but I know you did. Uh, you looked at some college basketball teams last year and looked at the draft a little bit. Uh, what are your quick thoughts on Dante Axum and Rodney Hood going into this season?
0: Uh, I, I love uh, I love both those guys in different ways. I think uh, Dante has got a great feeling. Um, he's such a young kid, and I think being in this offense is going to be fantastic for him. And the role they're going to ask him to play, he's going to be able to grow slowly. He's only going to play in you know, 10, 20 minutes. Uh, Burst is going to be able to learn the game at a pace that's going to kind of protect him a little bit. Um, and I think Rodney is just more power. I really like Rodney coming out as a player that could step in and help right away. You know, you can run him off screens and you can get some shots for You can put some pressure on the defense that way. And he's just going to be a solid complimentary piece. I think, you know, guy a knockdown shot, hopefully defends the position, um, you know, can attack closeouts and stuff like that. I, I think he's going to be a really solid uh, potential piece uh, for Utah down the road.
2: Brett, before we let you go, where can we follow you on social media?
0: Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, my long Greek last name would be at B Coromenos, that's K-O-R-E-M-E-N-O-S. m e n o s'm not super active these days, but I usually try to get my work out there, um, so people can read it if they're interested. Uh, but I really appreciate you guys, uh, having me on tonight.
2: Yeah, and it, it's Coromenos? We, have we been pronouncing it wrong the entire time?
0: Every you know what, man, everybody has pronounced it wrong since I was about six years old. So I mean you should have heard in like volleyball and basketball tournaments when I was little, man, I heard every every pronunciation of my last name including stuff that didn't genetically make sense. <laughs>
2: yep. You'd be surprised how much how often that even happens for two syllable last names like my own. It happens all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, man.
1: Well, Brett, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, and we'll be sure to follow your work
0: in the future. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I've had fun.
1: I really like what Brett had to add there. I mean, I, I think it's interesting to have that coaching perspective on how how the Jazz will be doing next season. And it's really interesting to hear how he felt Ty Corbin wasn't getting the most out of of, of the Jazz's star players.
2: Yeah, and and of course I think you have to agree. And his example of 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 favors going chasing Tony Parker thirty feet away on a, a high hedge on a pick and roll is is a great example. Honestly, like that's just not a good use of personnel. Like you've just you've got to recognize your personnel if you've got. Serge Ibaka, maybe you can do that because Serge Ibaka really fast for his size. Maybe a guy like Booker, who we now have on the team, can do that type of thing a little more often because he's got the lateral speed. But when you have a big stay-at-home guy like a Derek Favors or like an Ennis Cantor, the two main bigs in the Jazz system last year that were doing that high hedge constantly, I, I just don't think it's the right use of personnel, and that's that, he's right to be talking about that. That's exactly, exactly the coach's job, maximizing the personnel that he's got.
1: And it's interesting to hear it from a coach and then hear a coach saying that Quinn Snyder's doing that right so far, at least for what we've seen in the preseason. Anyway, so we that was our interview with Brett. We will have Around the NBA coming up next segment, along with uh, more from our interview with Adam Silver, who visited Utah yesterday. Uh, this is the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700.
3: You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number
0: one sports talk, ESPN 700.
1: All right, we're going to go into our Around the NBA segment right here, right now on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson alongside Ben Dowsett on the Salt City Hoop Show. Uh, so, first of all, like we've been referencing all show, we had Adam Silver in town last, uh, last game against Houston yesterday. Uh, had a chance to talk with him and ask him a couple of questions during the media uh, conference yesterday. Wanted to get his thoughts on the this cap smoothing thing. So, you know, this is something we talked a lot about in these Alec Burks negotiations. How the cap um, goes up as this TV money comes in is a big deal for how teams want to eventually pay these players who are under free agency. Let's hear what Adam Silver had to say about that.
3: The new money doesn't come in until the 16-17 season, but having said that, we'd like to know as early as possible if we are going to make a change so teams can plan accordingly. Um, It's something that does require the agreement of the union in order to create a so-called smoothing effect of the new money, and so I have discussed it with Michelle Roberts. Well, we're not at the point of looking for agreement with a specific proposal we have presented a concept to them in terms of how smoothing would work, and it's the league's position that it will lead to a more equitable distribution of the money if we smooth in rather than having one enormous windfall for the particular class of free agents that year. Just to be clear, the players in totality will still get 51% of total BRI in 16-17. It's just a question of how it's distributed among the players and, and where the level of the cap is set. Can you describe that proposal a little? The the proposal was, again, without being specific, that we, if you take the formula now for how the cap is determined and the tax level, um, based on a formula that we've negotiated with the union, we'd artificially move the cap and the tax down to a lower number. And then the shortfall between... What was paid through the cap system and the 51% of the BRI that we owe the players would be paid in a lump sum over to the union for them to distribute more equitably among all the members.
1: So I think that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, that's a lot of legal lawyer speak in there, and and we'll try to do our best to detangle it in in these few minutes that we've got. But I think it's interesting that they do want to... Basically decrease what the cap normally would be um, based on the projected BRI, which is the basketball-related income that the NBA gets. Um, overall, in, including these TV deals, and then basically pay that money to the players' union, who would choose to disperse it however they please, whether that be split equally amongst the 450 or so NBA players, or you know, split it by contracts, or you know, have a gigantic party, whatever the players' union wants to do with it, they can do with it. Well, is that a fair proposal for the players?
2: I think a lot of that may depend on what the details within the players' organization would be. Like, how would you feel, for example, if you were Steve Novak? And they let you all of a sudden. They let you know that because you're, you know, they're gonna base it on minutes played or something like that, or they're gonna, you know, they're gonna. Yeah. Which of course, they're not gonna do that. But like, they, you know. But if they did
1: it by like their last contract, which is, yeah. they very well may do, because otherwise, you know, the the Joe Ingles of the league get the same amount as the LeBron Jameses of the league, and you know, I, I don't know if that's fair when you're dividing five hundred million dollars. Yeah, that that's a big difference.
2: And I th- I think there'd be a lot of maybe details that we wouldn't be privy to in terms of those types of arrangements, as you say, a lot of. Lawyer speak and things like that, but I think for me personally, and this is just this is completely as a fan, not as an analyst whatsoever. I was thinking that it would just be it would be kind of fun to just do it all in one year. It like, would be just for just to see what happened because you know every team has free agent yeah, space. You know, insane stuff would happen. You know <laughs> that stuff because of course certain teams, Lakers, <throat> uh, certain teams would <laughs> just totally overreact. Right? S- some teams would totally assume that. Oh, hey, this means we have unlimited money and we can spend whatever. Or I should have coughed Knicks because the Knicks are a much better example. But, or the Nets. Or the Nets, yeah. Somebody somebody definitely would have been like. All three would have been. Hey, look at this. We can spend infinite amounts of money and you know they would have <laughs> gone and grabbed like two or three terrible contracts that a couple of years later we would have just, even in the new framework, we would have been sitting there going, that was ridiculous. Like guys. Alec Burks for
1: four years, $50 million. That's not ridiculous Jeez. at all. I don't know what you're talking about. But, no, I, I think you're right that, like, Steve Novak could get, like, $8 million per year contracts. And, you know, yeah. those kind of guys who end up being free agents during that summer, you could see gigantic gains just because teams want to be good right away. I mean, there's, there's a whole group of NBA owners that are literally dying and want to see their teams do well right now. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I, th- I think the, the results that might come from it, while it's unlikely, because I do think that what Adam is talking about is very likely to happen, I think they are going to smooth it out somewhat. I would, re- I would be entertained personally, just from a, a purely entertainment standpoint, <laughs> if they j- all of a sudden there was a twenty million dollar jump in the cap in one year. It, it would like, make us all laugh. It would, it would. I think there'd be some really entertaining stuff. If not that very summer, the the next one, and the one after, think, when we were looking back and being like, "Wow, look at how those guys reacted."
1: Do you think the Jazz would jump into this crazy free agent? Because that's not really their game. Is that's not really their scene? Is to spend lots of money on players. Even you know, if they were to get all of a sudden a ton more money to. To play
2: with. I think that they would be one of the more measured teams in terms of looking at the long-term consequences of what this is going to. And of course, right now every front office has people scrambling to do. At least all the smart ones are going to have people that are working on this now. We're working on, you know, what are these actual? Because we don't know. This that's what's been so interesting. You know, and the Spurs are one of these. We talk about the Spurs being ahead of the curve, and some of that is exploiting little exploitable tendencies in things like the CBA and the salary cap and elements right. like that. And the teams that find those first often are going to be the teams that are ahead of the curve like the Spurs have been for the last however many years. That's a really good point. Let's keep
1: going around the NBA. Our first point on around the NBA is just how bad the Lakers are. Oh, man. I mean, they have lost last. I mean, they haven't looked good in either of their first two games. They looked pretty horrendous during the preseason. Their coach is... Um, um. is I'm not gonna say it. Okay, you keep going. I I was kind of excited to hear what you were gonna say. Nope. Their coaches, um, to be nice, behind the times. He's he's an old school
2: coach. That's a very nice way of saying it,
1: Mr. Mr. Byron Scott. Um, and uh, basically, if you haven't heard already, is limiting his team to be taking a, a low number of threes per game. He wants his team to be fouling on defense, which is funny because you know free throws are one of the most efficient shots in the game. Um, uh, how, How bad are the Lakers going to be? Can Kobe get them to 30 wins? Can he get them to 25 wins?
2: Maybe 25. I just, I really don't think so. I don't want to overreact too much to a two-game sample, but when you also look at the fact that they lost Julius Randle, who literally had the potential to be their second or third best player by the middle of this season, which is just insane when you think about it. uh, When Carlos Boozer is probably their best interior defender, those words... Okay, I guess. Yeah, you're right. But those words still did just roll out of my mouth and weren't weren't entirely unrealistic, right? So- um, I mean, and, you know, Kobe's still got a lot of skill left in his body, but frankly, Kobe is not playing in a way that's conducive to winning basketball games.
1: No, that's true. I mean, there was that vine that came that was sent around the league yesterday. That's I think of him kind of going into a three on one dribble situation.
2: With Jeremy Lin wide open in the corner, by yeah, the way. Just
1: waving for the ball, which was great, and then pulling it out to take that same three on one follow a uh, jump shot at did the it end even of the hit shot. The, clock. Did it even
2: hit the rim? I, I'm unsure. The most entertaining part of their, either of their games. (laughs) Very good. Thank you, John. That, we needed that. Uh, no, but very, like, specifically, the, the most entertaining part of either of their games so far has been the little fight that he got into with Dwight Howard and a little jaw back and forth. Did yeah, you, did you uh, see that? Along with
1: the, I did see that and, and it was interesting that Kobe called Dwight Howard soft right after Dwight tried to elbow him in the face. D- oh, elbow him, he not tried to. He elbowed him in the that's face. That's not <laughs> something that, you, you know, if somebody elbows me on the face on the street, I'm not calling him soft. Maybe I'm going about my daily business after that and, <laughs> and giving that man some space, but yeah. I, I'm not calling him soft afterwards. I
2: thought it was funny that because I was on my Twitter, of course, when that was happening, mm-hmm. I happened to be watching that game live. Do not ask me why I was watching that basketball <laughs> game live at that point, but I was. And yeah, you and me, was, yeah, seriously, I would. But so I was on my Twitter, and the first thing that I saw was a bunch of people being like, "Oh, Kobe, Kobe could totally take him because Kobe's got a lot more crazy in him than Dwight does." Stop people have deep. you seen the size of that person <laughs> I'm sorry, but he could just pick Kobe up and just kind of walk around with him and put him on top of the basket or something like that like it, it, Dwight Howard would win that fight if there was a fight
1: let me ask you the question that Herbolos vulgaris or however you say his name the the famous Rale-bob. basketball better on Twitter asked which comes first Kobe Bryant um, basically quitting blowing up getting into a fight of some sort a or B the Lakers
2: winning a game, or C, the Lakers being favored to lose a game by 20 points. At this point, it really looks like the the third, because Kobe's not quitting. I'll tell you that right now, because Kobe's got a couple of huge names in his sights on the all-time point scoring 20 list. 20
1: points is a huge betting margin in
2: the NBA, though. Oh, it's a massive, massive margin. But what happens when they play the Spurs or something like that? I I mean, they're... I mean, I guess they'll probably win a game first. Where's Philly on their schedule? Like, how early early is Philly on their (laughs) schedule? That's a good question. I don't know. We'll have to look it up. If Philly's early enough on their schedule, I guess I would take number two. But, and, you know, even a team like that is eventually going to luck into a win or two. It's the NBA. There's still a decent amount of parity and things like, not a ton, but there's enough. Uh, You have to go with the second one, but, and... The first one is not happening, I'll tell you that right now. Kobe will play this this entire year and all of next year unless he's hurt. I think Kobe has actually accepted in his mind a little bit how bad this team is going to be and is just he wants the point scoring record. That's all he wants. I he's going to try his very very hardest, thing. I don't think he's going to get it. The math says that he doesn't have enough time left in his career to get it. But at le, at the very least he can pass both uh Michael Jordan and Karl Malone and get into second. I think he really wants to do that. I think Kobe really cares about that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's fair. Um, I'm curious. Well, I, I, his comments about Jeremy Lynn show me that he's still fighting for something this season, but I want to move on to more positive Hmm. uh, news around the NBA. And that is uh, Anthony Davis, who's on his, the other end of his career uh, of Kobe Bryant, Anthony Davis went for 26 points, 17 rebounds, nine blocks, three steals, zero turnovers, and only one foul in 36 minutes of play in opening day. Uh, ESPN had him ranked in a, by the way, 17-point win. ESPN had him ranked as the fifth
2: best player in the
1: league in, in NBA rank.
2: Do you think that's about right? I think that's I think that's right. There's a chance that it's higher, as some folks, again, on Twitter were debating. Some folks were, were trying to say that this could be the third best player in the league right now, and I think that depending on the context you're looking at, they could be right. The, uh, definitely in terms of his versatility and the number of things that he's capable of doing. We may or may not see him get the range this year, the three-point range. I don't know that he's actually going to do that, but his mid-range game has definitely expanded and is, is working really well. This is just a this is a freak human being. This is a person that can do things that I mean, he was ever those who have been following, they know he, he was a guard when he was younger, and then right. all of a sudden had this huge growth spurt to hit seven feet or however because tall he is. he's
1: literally an alien.
2: Yeah, because he's an alien human. And <laughs> he, that doesn't make, that term doesn't make any sense. But anyway, so he has, this is a guy who's got guard skills in his body, but is seven feet tall and has limbs that are what, like seven foot seven wingspan or something completely ridiculous like yeah. that? Yeah, uh- like a completely ludicrous wingspan, this is going to be a guy that's going to be a force in this league for a long, long time. It is so much fun to watch him. He's turned the, the Pelicans into instant league pass material right away. Like you, you're, you have to watch them. He can block a shot from anywhere. It's kind of ridiculous the shots that he's blocking. Still has some. Th- I mean, he's 21. He's 21 years old. <laughs> wow. He's still got a lot of things to learn, but he's the the rate at which he's learning them is spectacular at this point. And we could realistically be talking about this guy as an MVP candidate. It by next season
1: I, I think that's fair i mean i don't think anyone else in the league could put up that box score in in day one let's also talk about uh russell westbrook 38 points last night admittedly on 11 for 26 shooting six assists three steals two turnovers um went to the line 16 times in only 33 minutes of play obviously that's a, that's an impressive scoring total for westbrook uh, how, is that team going to be okay without kevin durant
2: um. Well, no. I mean, not not as okay as that. Like, not elite in the West as they would normally be. Okay. Um. No, they're not gonna be the rest of that team. Is it possible that the supporting cast of that team somehow got worse? Because I think so. They may have. Which I'm not seems, sold on Anthony
3: Mora at all. No. I
2: no. Me neither. Not one bit. Jeremy Lamb doesn't look very good. Perkins is Perkins. The you know things like that. I. To me, it's astonishing the lack of help that the Oklahoma City organization has put around those three stars in recent years. And as I was mentioning to you earlier today, I, I have been relatively unimpressed with the way Serge Ibaka has played during these—we the, have now have three periods of time. And, of course, this is on a one-game sample size for this most recent one, but we have three periods of time now where either Westbrook or Durant, in the previous two cases it was Westbrook, has missed significant time for the Thunder, which gives Ibaka a real chance to step up and be the second fiddle, if you will. And he has not done it. He's been a great defensive player, and that's never changed, and that's never going to change. He's a great defensive player, one of the best in the league. But he has—he really hasn't stepped into the role as a as a second offensive contributor, as a, a second leader, if you will, on the team. I've been relatively unimpressed by that. I think he's a guy who's got the skill set that he should be able to. He just hasn't been able—he can't create his own shot. He's entirely dependent on other players offensively, essentially. He's a great mid-range shooter, but again, he can't create it for himself like Dirk. And- and, and that's and,
1: interesting because the the uh, sorry the fender made that trade the the harden trade thinking that he could be that guy where they I think they were less convinced that James Harden would be a, would be a better fit for that team. Obviously, it hasn't gone in that direction thus far.
2: Yeah, I guess hindsight is twenty twenty on that one. <sighs> and, and and no, getting back to Westbrook though, he was a, a human force of nature for those first three quarters. He but then just completely slowed down he didn't have anything left it was like lebron last year in the finals he, he just eventually couldn't do it
1: yeah no i it's i think that was clear and it's going to be interesting to see how he holds up over those 82 games that was our around the nba segment next up we'll have the, our uh, final analysis of the houston game as well as the rapidly concluding um mavericks jazz game looks like the mavericks are running away with it we, we'll talk a little bit about those two games at the end of our salt city hoop show on espn 700
0: Talking hoops and the association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700.
1: All right, welcome back into the show. Um, Just our final segment tonight. So we've got two games, obviously, yesterday and then tonight's game. Yesterday's game against the Houston Rockets. Houston defeated the Utah Jazz 104-93. Tonight, as we speak, this this Dallas game, the the result of it is pretty much clear. Uh, Dallas leads Utah 114 96 um, two not very good defensive games so far for the Utah Jazz. Obviously, last night giving up 104 points and only 90 possessions. That's not a good defensive rating at all. Um, you know, along the lines of where they were last season, giving worse up
2: worse than the average from last season. Right. And, and
1: to be fair, the Houston Rockets are a better team than yeah. the average team. Yeah. But that being said, you know, for a team that really wanted to pride itself on defense, they did a lot of things wrong defensively. They gave up a lot of open three point shots. Houston shot 51% um, from three last night uh they gave up 18 fast break points and then i think we're seeing those kind of problems again tonight as dallas has 115 points left in the game with uh two minutes 15 seconds left to go
2: yeah and you know to be fair like you said houston's a very good diff- offensive team as is dallas both of these teams could very sure. are very likely in fact to finish in the league's top 10 in terms of offensive efficiency so it's it's too early of course to make any you know condemn full-on condemning judgments that said even for a young team, there have been a few things that I've been a little bit disappointed to see so far. Regardless of how young you are, knowing who your guy is when you run back on defense, and knowing who you're supposed to go stand close to, and make sure that they don't do damaging things to your team, specifically shoot three pointers. Are you are calling worse. out somebody right now? Not specifically. Do I mean. It. I will say Cantor was kind of bad at it last okay. night, and in, and I haven't I haven't seen the full game tonight. I'll be rewatching it a little bit later on, but but we'll see what the results were from tonight. It looks like Dallas has shot some a lot of open threes as well tonight. Um, th- that stuff's just got to be happening. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how inexperienced you are. When you're coming back on defense, you got to find your guy and you got to get close to him. Mm-hmm. If it's a guy that can shoot three pointers, you got to be out at the perimeter standing by. It doesn't matter how tall you are. You got to be out there. These this is simple stuff, and. I saw a lot of that last night that unfortunately wasn't happening. The transition deal, like you were talking about, the Jazz were having a lot of trouble picking up their guys in transition. And... Some of the same tendencies that we saw last year, if they were good, I thought for the most part against first action type stuff, they shut down the first option at least most of the time. You know, sometimes Houston's got James Harden and he's really good, and you're not always going to be able to stop his first option. But they did. I think lo- they
1: did a lot of. Yeah, games a lot last of the night.
2: time they really did. And but they were they were just getting killed on the rotation and the second set and the third set sometimes. Those are Uh, the types that—that's the real killers. Like, anyone in this league is talented enough to stop the first stuff. It's the second and third stuff that matters.
1: I I tweeted this out last night, but all 10 of James Harden's 10 assists last night were for three-point shots. All of them. So they're all—it is literally, you know, great job. You've done a great job of stopping James Harden going to the rim. He was only 6 for 18 last night. But then you gave you them 30 points. 30 points!
2: On these ten jump shots. Six for eighteen. While well, Alex Burks guarded him for most of the game. Ah. Yeah, but
1: maybe he needed the help, which caused those <laughs> rotations, which caused the open yeah, three-point yeah. shots. Yeah, yeah. Nine million dollars per year, Ben. That's all. <laughs> that's all we're offering.
2: Yeah. Now, of course, teams aren't always even when you leave them open threes. Teams aren't always going to shoot that well from three against the yeah, against the Jazz.
1: And I think it was uh, a lot of them making shots and the Jazz missing shots. You know, they yeah. only shot 18%. Obviously, uh, like we said, Houston shot 52%. That's that's
2: a, a big difference yeah, um, although I do unfortunately have one the jazz actually shot better on uncontested shots per sport view data the, oh, wow. jazz, the jazz shot fifty percent on their uncontested shots, and Houston shot just under forty two percent so
1: maybe it's it so it is just then in that analysis, the number of uncontested shots that the jazz are are leaving Houston open with,
2: yeah, Houston got five more of them than the jazz did for the whole game, and then and Houston was just way better on their contested shots Now that isn't always necessarily one hundred percent accurate because it only uses distance and sometimes contests are a little bit more uh uh Detailed than the, the how far away a defender right. was standing, so that they, those might not be right on, but not the greatest sign there. You would hope that the Jazz would be if they were getting close to as many open shots that they'd be having some of the same results.
1: No, I, I think that's fair. Um, also, the Jazz had a lot of points in the paint last night at 62, which is a good sign. Um, I, I think, in particular, with points in the paint, Derek Favors has done a good job in both of these games. Last night, he was seven for ten with 16 points seven rebounds, three steals, four blocks. I mean, those are the kind of numbers that you want to see inside. Um, tonight, the same sort of thing, seven for 12 on that end, 11 rebounds, not the same number of steals or blocks as he got in, in the last game. And, in fact, Dallas has a uh, preponderance of points in the paint, 52. Um, but that being said, I, I, I'm pleased with how Derek Favors has played this far this season.
2: Yeah, he's looked really good. He looks springy. He got a few blocks last night that it didn't. you wondered where they came from, kind of like a Gobert-style type of thing. Um, and he's looked strong. He's looked uh, kind of like we talked about in the preseason. He's he's starting to fully realize the 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 strength that's in that body and what he's able to do to some of the people that he's playing by just utilizing that pure brute strength, pure brute strength. Excuse me. Yeah. And, oh no, you go
1: ahead. No, I I think that's absolutely right. That game, by the way, just went final. The final score is Dallas one twenty, Utah one oh two. So for those of you uh, who may have dyslexia, the score will seem a lot better than it is. Ah. <laughs> um on the other side of the jazz's front line is ennis canter um he only played 20 minutes tonight only played 22 last night has had in my mind has disappointed i think you know we talked about this as a put up or shut up your friend Ennis canter last night only uh let's see here 10 points five for 12 shooting not getting the rebounds only five rebounds um only and four tonight. again just not great on the defensive end. Um, obviously haven't haven't gotten a chance to watch Cantor play defense, but tonight four for 10, only four rebounds, no blocks, no steals, no assists, um, only 20 minutes playing, you know, basically the same number of minutes as Trevor Booker did. I I hoped for more for minutes.
2: Yeah. And again, early, we've got time. There's, there's, they're going to play teams that aren't as good, that are going to make them look a lot better on both ends. And that's, you know, not for these first few games, because these first, this first six (laughs) games late of the year is completely ridiculous, but and, you know, uh, while some of the forecasts had been, like we talked with Brett earlier, that maybe this Jazz team was going to be a bit of an upstart, they're still not projected to be one of the better teams in the league. They've still got everybody under, under 26, except for Steve Novak. And, unfortunately, some of this was expected. They're playing two of the better Western Conference teams, two playoff teams from last year to open up their season, and they've had a rough go of it. Both the teams they've played have had a lot of continuity. Dallas, Dallas has basically... Uh, What pretty much the entire same roster except Tyson Chandler coming back except that Tyson Chandler has already played for them before in the past right Houston brought a lot of the same guys back and that sort of stuff combined with the talent advantages that they have it was always going to be rough sledding for the jazz to start off and I think we've we've seen that kind of Uh, I
1: I mean to be fair the jazz have continuity in players but not necessarily coaches yeah and that it's a whole new world for the jazz System-wise.
2: Yeah, exactly. Whereas Dallas is functioning under the exact same foundational system that they've been doing for several years since they won their championship with Dirk as the center and everything else kind of operating around there.
1: Yeah, and I think that's—yeah, obviously, I don't think anyone disagrees that the Mavericks are going to be better than the Jazz this season, and it's, it's going to be difficult for the Jazz yeah. to win those games back-to-back again against a good team.
2: I am encouraged—the one thing is that if you look tonight at the box score, all five Jazz starters did score in double figures that's we're talking about the team, and we're talking about as Brett said earlier, how there may not be one necessarily star on this team that's going to carry the load type of thing. I like seeing the the scoring being balanced like that, even if it wasn't quite enough scoring to win the game, and then uh, Booker had nine also, so that's six players with nine or more points. I do like how things are kind of being spread around offensively, and I don't think the Jazz, from the brief since that I was watching tonight and also last night, I don't think the Jazz looked too bad offensively. Yeah. I think they've they've the motion offense is going to be paying dividends for them.
1: Yeah, last night I thought they missed a lot of shots that they could have made. Yeah, you know. So tonight I'm just doing the math really quick, but it looks like they have about 105 possessions um, for 102 points. You know, that's not bad. Or sorry, 95 possessions. Sorry, I'm I, as a math major I should be able to do math in my head more quickly than I currently am. Unfortunately, I cannot. Um, that being <laughs> said, I, the Jazz have played well offensively um, in the last two games, and I think we see that from their offensive rating.
2: Yeah, and I, I think they're going to even continue to improve there. You, you, like you said, they missed a lot of shots that they could have made. A lot of maybe some maybe some early jitters for a, a a team that's a little bit nervous. Maybe they heard the hype a little bit, not the hype of them potentially being a surprising team. Things like that. There's a long season to go. We got 80 games still left after this. A lot of time left. That being said, the next four are not easy. No. Um, the
1: Jazz take on the Phoenix Suns at home um, Saturday. To- or sorry, not tomorrow, but Saturday at, um, at seven o'clock. Then t- face off at. The Los Angeles Clippers, Monday, November 3rd. Then the most anticipated game of the season, the Utah Jazz against the Cleveland Cavaliers. As we've talked about last week, those games are usually really good if you don't already have mm-hmm. tickets. That's the best possible be game to watch. It's going to be a good to time. Watch. Oh, I'll be there. And then after that, the Jazz then play the Mavericks again um, that Friday of that week. So at least there aren't any more back-to-backs in the upcoming week, but still, in in terms of a difficulty of schedule,
2: that's, that's almost as hard as you can get. Yeah, it's going But that's a be West tough. this year. And I, I do think, you know, it, was it you that put it up on Twitter? It was some, some jazz media yesterday that put up on Twitter that, that Dennis Lindsay repeated all summer that this was going to be a tough process right at the start. And we knew it was, and I think that both he and Quinn Snyder will have prepared the team for, listen, we're we're playing six playoff teams right off the, maybe not, Cleveland and Phoenix, I guess, last year didn't make the playoffs, but we can call all six of these first six games playoff teams that we're playing against. Cleveland is clearly a special case. Yeah, I think Cleveland's probably going to make the playoffs this year in the East. And, you know, Phoenix was a couple of games short, and again, if they played in the East, they would have been like, what, the four seed or something like that? Right. So these are playoff caliber teams, all six right in a row, not the easiest way to start off. by going by last year's schedule the jazz are go- or by last year's strength the jazz are going to have the toughest schedule in the entire league this year. Lovely. So not not easy.
1: Good news is that the jazz after that stretch go on a five-game road trip against some of the better teams or some of the worst teams in the league, Detroit, Indiana, Atlanta, New York and the Raptors. That should be a little bit easier. Anyway, thanks for listening to the show today. Check out our work at saltcityhoops.com. My name is Andy Larson. You can follow me on Twitter at Andy B. Larson. This is Ben Dowsett at Ben underscore Dowsett. Follow us on Twitter or check out our work at saltcityhoops.com. This is the ESPN Radio Salt City Hoops Show.